You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, we analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.1, Beyond the Time, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and very glad to be back with you all. And I'm Nina. Now I finally know the source of those famous scenes that were spoiled for me years ago. So if you were holding back, unleash the memes. Shars Counterattack memes only, no memes from after that. Don't spoil the Nina. I'm just saying... I've known about the I'm about to do something extremely wicked line for a long time. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 481 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, of which there are lots, so bear with me. Petsu-chan, Alexandra and Jeremy BJ, Malcolm R, The Dizzy, Theodore A, Benjamin S. Kitka, Alex C. I am a parade. Jared Fan. Raf A. Ostopasto. Robert W. Lawrence R. Lucho. Foggy Gumpla. Logan P. Clinton McSee. John P. Ben E. Craig S. Patrick. Daniel L. Joshua A. Hans D. Thomas W. Harry L, Grant N, Trevor L, Eric D, Dan A, Buddy G, Oscar R, Epixor, Jarmo S, David E, Catherine B, and James F. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And thank you to the two anonymous supporters on Kofi, to Hannah R for the book and stickers, Panatier for the book zines and stickers. Mason K for the book, and Hobbs5226 for the Gumpla. We have an exciting announcement. I know you're already very excited that the new season has started, but this is maybe just as exciting. After many a COVID-related process disruption and delay, this year's pins have arrived. Our annual limited edition commemorative pins. We will be posting photos to Patreon and social media accounts so that you can see the new design. The way our annual promotion works is that everyone pledging $5 a month or more on the deadline will receive a pin. It's that simple. This year's deadline is December 1st. And if you're already a patron, now is a good time to update your mailing address so that we can be sure we're sending your pin to the right location. We are also adding a new patron benefit. Starting this season, patrons will get early access to MSB episodes. For every regular episode, patrons will get the episode one week ahead of the normal release, and this is for all patron tiers. In addition to early access and the annual pin, patrons, depending on tier, get access to bonus content, an exclusive Discord, limited edition merch, and more. Check it out at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. It's been a little while, so thank you all for your patience. 
We are thrilled to be back for season four. The production for this season was quite different from what we've done in the past, and this season is going to be a little different as well. So before we get started properly, let me first explain how it's going to go. The reason this episode took so long to produce is that we have been working on all the episodes of this season at the same time. After watching Char's counterattack, we realized there was no way to cover the whole thing in a single podcast, and it didn't make sense to try to split it up into TV episode length chunks and then cover those sequentially. Can you imagine us sitting here trying to discuss just the first 20 minutes of the movie while pretending not to know what happens afterwards? <laughs> yeah, terrible idea. So what we are doing instead is this. We are going to cover the movie and some related projects over the course of seven episodes, each of which will focus on a different theme or aspect of the movie. Seven might seem like a lot of episodes for one movie, but this is an important one. It is the end of an era, the beginning of another. It was the work of years and thousands, probably tens of thousands of man hours. It was a landmark for Gundam. It's also just incredibly dense as a work. It wouldn't feel right to give it short shrift, and while it's impossible for us to be comprehensive in our coverage, here at MSB, we like to be thorough. In truth, we could probably do more than seven episodes but we do have a lot of other Gundam to get to. Since each episode of season four is going to focus on a different aspect of the movie, we've invited some expert guests to join us for our discussions. Some of them are returning favorites and some are brand new, but you'll meet them on future episodes. This episode, 4.1, will focus on what came before the film started rolling. That means we're going to cover most of the same things we cover in the first episode of any season. We'll go through major events happening in the world in the late 80s to give a sense for the real-world context when this movie hit theaters, as well as what has changed since Double Zeta. But because of the unique circumstances of this movie, we will also be covering two animated shorts, the first of a series, sort of, called SD Gundam, which were shown in theaters before Char's Counterattack. The two of them together amount to about the length of a TV episode, and we're going to cover them the way we would normally cover a TV episode. Nina will recap the events of the shorts, and then we'll discuss them. But we also have research, a piece on the origins of SD Gundam, which you'll hear in a minute, and we've done a bit of research to try to identify as many as we can of the easy-to-miss jokes and references crammed into these shorts. But we'll work that into our discussion. Then... Next week, with episode 4.2, The Inescapable Mobius Loop, we'll start in on the movie proper. We'll recap what happens, and we'll discuss it in more or less our usual talkback format. Then, from episode 4.3 on, we'll get into the topic-focused episodes. 4.3 will cover ecology and environmentalism in Char's counterattack. 4.4 will cover aesthetics, character designs, backgrounds, mobile suits, and more. 4.5 will cover character psychology. 4.6 will cover editing, shot construction, and other aspects of the filmmaking. And we'll wrap up with 4.7, which will feature both a discussion of the movie's relationship to real science, as well as our final thoughts. And 4.7 will also have the conclusion to the saga of the Titans News Network and Radio Free Shangri-La. And now, the podcast. 
We are about to cover the first two SD Gundam shorts. These are firsts in a lot of ways. They're naturally the first SD Gundam to be animated, and they are kind of the origin of the term SD, but I'll explain that more later. They're the first Gundam projects without Tomino's oversight as head director. They're the first official parody Gundam shows. And they are the first totally original Gundam to debut in a theater, having played as a theatrical short before the Shars Counterattack feature presentation. Which is why we're covering them now, before we cover the movie itself. We are committed to watching everything in release order, and these released first, even if the difference was only 20 minutes or so. The SDs are not as popular outside Japan. It's harder to find information about them. It's just harder to find them. We had to import the copy that we're watching from Japan, and it had been out of print there for years. So let me take a moment to thank everyone who has contributed to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon or Ko-fi, because that funding makes it possible for us to do this. Because there's less information about these shows available in English, and because of the way they're structured, it can be a bit confusing keeping track of all the various SD shorts. For instance, today we are going to be covering two shorts, Will the Gundam Stand Up? and Menace of the Xeon Hotel, Destruction Order for the Gundam Pension. These are usually grouped together with a third entry, SD Olympics, The Stadium is Died with Laughter and are referred to collectively as SD Gundam Mark I. But that's anachronistic. SD Olympics did not play in theaters with Char's Counterattack. It first appeared two months later as a bonus on the home video release of the two already released theatrical shorts. And of course, there was no reason to call it SD Gundam Mark I, because at that point, it was the only SD Gundam to be animated and might have been the only SD Gundam ever to be animated. It wasn't, but it might have been. I said home video earlier because that's the term we use for these kinds of releases, but really, that first release was intended specifically for rental, not for people to buy for their own homes. They would issue a later release at a lower price intended for people's personal libraries, but that one reordered the shorts, uh, and so that version of SD Gundam Mark I includes a different set of SD shorts. Anyway. The next set of SD Gundam would be called Mark II, and so retroactively this first release becomes Mark I. But let's back up a little. SD, in this context, means super deformed, or in most English releases, superior defender, due to concerns about the connotations of the word deformed in English. The term describes characters and mobile suits from Gundam who are drawn with exaggerated proportions, huge heads, and small, rounded, potato-like bodies. It's perhaps more common to call these characters chibi, the average human body is around seven and a half times the height of the head. In art, it's common to stretch or squash the body according to stylistic and practical goals. Model sheets for Zeta Gundam give Quattro a range of heights from around six and a half heads to seven and a half heads tall. But in the anime, you can find scenes where he comes closer to nine heads tall. Getting even more extreme, in works by the famous manga collective Clamp, 
it's not unusual to encounter characters who are as much as 10 heads tall. Mobile suits tend toward small heads relative to their bodies. It's an aesthetic that tends to emphasize their height and their physical power. Children tend toward the opposite extreme. Shinta and Kum are both around four heads tall. Kika from First Gundam was less than three. Partly, that's just an exaggerated version of how human bodies develop. Partly, it's motivated by the basic artistic challenge of trying to portray a distinctive character face. The less space you have to draw, the harder it is to convey the character. But if the character has to be smaller for some reason, you can still make things easier for yourself by keeping the head basically the same size. Kika's head in First Gundam is actually larger than the heads of most of the other characters. Or like Mario, you know, from video games. When Miyamoto Shigeru sat down to design the character who would eventually become Mario, he needed to fit the design into a box just 16 pixels tall. With realistic proportions, there would not have been enough space to give the new character a smiley face. But squash him down enough, and you could make him a character. A big-headed, potato-bodied character. But partly artists do this because we humans seem to be kind of hardwired to like things with the right baby-like proportions. People have been taking advantage of this for ages, but looking at the 20th century, we can really see how commercial artists used cuter and cuter character designs to broaden the appeal of their products. Famously, the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould traced changes in depictions of Mickey Mouse through the decades, with the character growing more and more juvenile in his features, more and more cute, as the Disney Corporation became an increasingly sophisticated commercial enterprise. The original Mickey Mouse looks a lot more like a mouse, and, not incidentally, kind of like a horrid little goblin monster. Whereas the Mickey Mouse who appears in, say, hit video game series Kingdom Hearts, barely resembles a mouse at all. If he didn't have mouse in his name, would anyone even realize that that's what he's supposed to be? But this is hardly limited to Disney. Consider the long-running newspaper comic strip Peanuts. While the child character's proportions didn't change all that much in the strip's 50-year run, the beagle Snoopy evolved from a realistic dog into a big-headed, small, potato-bodied, vaguely dog-inspired mascot. Like Mickey, he became more and more broadly appealing as the market for character merchandise expanded. In Japan, consider the so-called godfather of anime, Tezuka Osamu. Tezuka himself was influenced by Walt Disney's style and then became hugely influential for later generations of Japanese artists. It is hard to express just how influential he was, and his most iconic works, like Mighty Adam, Princess Knight, Kimba the White Lion, and Dororo, all featured characters with cute proportions. Big heads, small, simplified, rounded body shapes. Mickey Mouse, Snoopy, and Mighty Adam all come from a mixture of artistic and commercial motivations. But the purely commercial side had not missed their popularity, especially with kids. From the beginning, anime studios licensed their characters to other companies. Sellers of candy, toys, games, stationery, you name it. The sponsors funded the making of the anime, and the anime drove sales for their products. Like First Gundam in its time, Mighty Adam touched off an industry-reshaping craze back in 1963, 
At that time, the craze was for tubes of Meiji brand chocolate with Mighty Adam stickers in them. And some companies realized that you didn't need to sink money into a TV anime that might or might not take off when you could just make your own marketable characters. This is exemplified by companies like Sanrio and their big-headed, small-potato-bodied, cat-adjacent mascot Kitty-chan, first introduced in 1975 and better known to us as Hello Kitty. Kitty enjoyed her own popularity boom, running from around 1977 to 1979. All of this is to say that by the time Gundam was on the air, the chibi aesthetic was already pervasive. It should be no surprise then that while SD Gundam would not be animated until 1988, its origins lie in the original 1979 broadcast for First Gundam. Yokoi Koji was a middle school student when Gundam aired in 1979, and he didn't watch it. But one of the girls in his class did. As you may know, Bandai would not release the first Gunplicates until July 1980, months after Gundam finished its ignominious run on television. The Gunpla boom that followed brought in tons of new fans. New fans who would swell theater audiences and turn Gundam into a massive success when the movies started coming out the next year. Most of those new fans were boys. But before all of that, the core of the early Gundam fandom was young girls, entranced largely by Yasuhiko Yoshikazu's charming character designs. Yokoi recalls that the girl in his class was particularly fond of Shar and Garma. For her birthday, he bought her a magazine about Gundam. He didn't know anything about it, but when he peeked inside the magazine, he instantly fell in love with the Xeon mobile suits. It's really a classic boy meets girl, girl likes Shar and Garma, boy falls in love with robots kind of tale. <laughs> tale as old as time. Even then, Yokoi was a passionate young artist. So passionate that he ignored his studies, and his mother destroyed a bunch of his drawings to motivate him. And it did motivate him, in a sense, because that's around when he started sending his art out to magazines. In 1981, when he was just 13 years old, Yokoi submitted a drawing of a goof to Bandai's Model Information magazine. The goof had not yet taken on the extreme deformation that we associate with SD Gundam, but it was on the way. It was squashed and rounded, the body was simplified, and the head was exaggerated. His pen name was Toriyama Oto, the lesser Toriyama, taken from his principal inspiration, Toriyama Akira. At the time, Toriyama was best known for the manga and anime series Dr. Slump, but of course, now, he is more famous as the creator of Dragon Ball. Over the next few years, Yokoi would continue drawing and submitting fan art to model information, and not just mobile suits. He drew machines from Tetsujin 28 Go, Zabungle, Aura Battler Dunbine, Genma Taisen, and of course, Dr. Slump itself. Yokoi was far from the only fan artist dabbling in chibi-style takes on established characters, but he would soon become deeply involved in the origins of SD Gundam. In July 1983, while Yokoi was still sending in fan art, the sunrise mecha anime Fang of the Sun Dogram was recut and released in theaters as a compilation movie, along with an all-new humorous theatrical short, Choro-kyu Dogram. And in that short, the big stompy robots and characters alike were compressed into big-headed, potato-bodied parodies of themselves. These were the mid-80s, 
the most vicious period in the Mecha Toy Wars, and Dagram was sponsored by one of Bandai's competitors. When chibi-style Dagram toys hit the market, Bandai was obliged to respond. At first, they tried putting a 160th scale head on a 1-144th scale body. But by summer 1984, they had come up with designs for simplified model kits with big heads, small bodies, and a very rudimentary transformation gimmick. These were called Robo Chanman, and they covered a swath of Bandai's mecha properties, including Gundam. While Bandai's model division was working on Robo Chanman, the Gashapon division started working on their own Chibi Gundam merchandise. Gashapon is a term you may recognize. It's a kind of capsule toy vending machine. The toys are sealed inside spherical capsules and loaded into a vending machine like a giant gumball machine. You put in your money, turn the crank, and out comes a small toy. What you get is random from a certain selection, and so if you want a particular toy, you're just going to have to keep feeding yen into the machine until fortune smiles upon you. In recent years, these kinds of machines have been replicated in video games to great consternation. A key part of any Gashapon machine, of course, is the big, eye-catching display panel, which usually features some cool art of whatever is concealed within. Because the Gashapon format requires the toys to be small and cheap, and because of manufacturing limitations in the 1980s, it was difficult to adequately replicate the look of a mobile suit in a Gashapon toy. It was natural, then, to adopt squashed, chibi proportions for capsule toys. In 1984, Masia Sasano, a toy developer at Bandai, was working on a new line of Gashapon robot toys. He commissioned display panel art from a graphic design firm, but was not happy with what they gave him. He talked about his problem with the editor of Model Information, who showed him some of the art Yokoi had sent in. At the time, Yokoi was still in high school, and he had started drawing fan comics, Dojinshi. He submitted one of these to Model Information, and they liked it so much that the editor called him and asked him if he would do a series of four-panel parody comics for the magazine. When he proposed squashing the mobile suits, he was told that he could compress them as much as he liked, so long as they remained identifiable. The first such comic would be published in November 1984. Masia liked Yokoi's work. He met with the boy, who at that point was only 16, but Masia knew he had found the right artist for the project. Yokoi would draw the art in pencil, and then the graphic design firm would clean it up and put together the final display panel. This worked well, but soon, in 1985, Masia started to receive some pushback from within Bandai. Yokoi's art was good, and the product was selling, but he was still a high school student. The director of the department told Masaya to stop meeting with Yokoi and stop buying art from him. And so, of course, he stopped. Nah, I'm just kidding. Masaya started taking all of his vacations in Yokoi's home city of Nagoya, where he would run into Yokoi and commission more art at his own personal expense. Yokoi's art would find its way into the instruction manuals for Robo Chanman models, and he would collaborate with Masaya on a range of other projects. Part of what distinguished Yokoi's art at this stage was just how squashed the mobile suits were. In 1985, Masaya oversaw the release of a line of PVC Gundam toys that were an unprecedented two heads tall. 
as in, the head was as tall as the whole rest of the body. These were more than just deformed chibi characters. They were super deformed. And it was this two heads tall Gundam that first bore the name SD. Easy to make, cheap to buy, and charming to look at, SD-styled Gundam merchandise proved popular, and that popularity lasted. When the time came to make Char's counterattack, it was natural for the team at Sunrise to do what their colleagues had done with Choro-Kyu Dogram half a decade prior. They made short Gundam parodies featuring what were at that point already very popular SD versions of the characters and mobile suits. And now the recap for the first two SD Gundam shorts. The first short, Dai Ichibu, is titled Gekito Hen, Gundam Daichi ni Tateru ka? Which means roughly fierce fighting. Will Gundam stand up? It is, for the most part, a mishmash of scenes from First Gundam, with tiny bits of Zeta and Double Zeta mixed in. Three Zaku infiltrate a colony and attack the OG Gundam, who fends them off with Haro's assistance but not without blasting a hole in the colony that sucks all of them out into space. Char and Lala watch the Gundam fight on a TV broadcast. The Gundam is attacked by a parade of enemy mobile suits and mobile armors from the first three series, before fighting the Elmeth and Char's Red Zaku. Although in this version, Lala mistimes her interception, and Char's Zaku is destroyed. But Lala is still a ghost. At Abawaku, the Big Zam takes on a bunch of Federation mobile suits, and one Jim calls attention to the fact that they're all just cannon fodder, before the Big Zam is tripped by an Ag, tunneling up under the surface. Then we cut back to the forest fight with the Black Tri-Stars, with the Granddaddy Gundam fighting so well it leaves nothing for the Zeta or the Double Zeta to do. The Palace Athene makes an appearance only to be destroyed by its own missiles, the three protagonists, Amuro, Camille, and Judo, are shown, and Camille's eyes, unlike the other two, aren't drawn with pupils, irises, whites, etc., but are drawn as reflecting outer space, darkness, stars, planets. Then there's the late-stage confrontation between the Gundam and the Zeong from First Gundam, ending in the Gundam's victory. The second short, Dai Nibu, is titled which translates to something like holiday, the menace of the Xeon Hotel, destruction orders for the Gundam pension. A quick note that in this context, a pension is like a bed and breakfast or a boarding house, not as fancy as a hotel and much smaller, but generally nicer and with more amenities than a hostel. In this short, different seaside accommodations do battle for guests. Alongside a beach, there's a swimming pool, a tennis court, and the three Gundam pensions, each of which looks like the Gundam head from its series. Amuro runs the Gundam, Camille the Zeta, and Judo the Double Zeta. In the distance, up on a hill, is the Zeon Hotel, which looks an awful lot like the spiky, ominous Zeon Palace depicted in First Gundam, but with a smiley face on it. A bus, driven by Sirocco, arrives carrying the most popular women and girl characters from the three series. 
Mirai, Sela, Frabo, and Lala from First Gundam, Beltorchka, Fa, and Four from Zeta, and Pudu, Emery, and Kiara from Double Zeta. Haman and Minova arrive on their own in a red convertible. While Amuro and Judo argue over whose pension is better, all the women decide to go to Camille's Zeta pension, except for Haman and Minova, who go to the Zeon Hotel. After everyone has gone, Amuro cries out for Matilda, and she appears. She's going to stay at Amuro's Gundam pension. But his happiness ends abruptly when Woody steps out from behind her. Lena scolds Judo for his inability to get any guests. A naked Pudu runs through every pension, singing her own name. And Judo and Char peep in the windows of Camille's pension at all the guests rinsing off before going to the pool. While they're swimming and sunbathing, the Black Tri-Stars, Yazan, and Gemon Bajak show up. Char orders them to attack, and they bust up furniture, throw things in the pool, and generally cause mayhem until the three protagonists arrive. Cut to evening. Minova is bored and alone, watching the party by the pool from the balcony of the Xeon Hotel. Soroko and Sarah are hitting it off when Camille butts in and tries to break them up, and then all three of them are distracted when the Lala and Four ghosts float by. Kiara cracks her whip and repeats the scene of her inappropriately rubbing up on Judo. Char, watching it all from the Xeon Hotel, is interrupted when Yazan announces that Haman and Minova have left to stay in a Gundam pension. The same group of baddies as before, this time accompanied by Fuzaku and Dom mobile suits, return to the Gundam pension's pool to get revenge. Again, they cause chaos until the Gundam protagonists show up, this time with their mobile suits, and put a stop to it. Until Shars Zaku drops in. And it is not chibi. As it stomps toward the Gundam pensions, leaving the SD Gundams quaking in fear, help appears. The arrival of the new Gundam causes Shars Zaku to shrink down to SD size, and when they fight, the new Gundam trounces the older mobile suit spinning it round and round before releasing it, sending it flying into the Xeon Hotel, which promptly crumbles into dust. Yazan and Gemon look around for Char and find his helmet, but no sign of him. He has already escaped, and working alone on a new mobile suit, vows that he'll get his revenge in the movie. The three protagonists promise to work together from now on and run down the beach into the sunrise. talked about the development of these shorts and the origins of the term and the style SD or super deformed. Now we'll talk about the shorts themselves. They are simple plots, each less than 10 minutes long, and left us with the impression that they are chock-a-block full of references and gags, many of which probably sailed over our heads. So as we discuss the shorts, we'll also attempt to identify and explain as many of the references and jokes as we can. Before I started this piece, my hope was to find a Japanese language source that had already done that, especially for any references to contemporary pop culture or current events. But alas, it either doesn't exist, or more likely, I'm not great at doing internet research in Japanese. So we're doing this the hard way. Which moments felt like they were supposed to be jokes? Can I find any information that makes them make more sense? I'm not going for comprehensiveness, and we're not going to explain jokes that feel self-explanatory. Uh, if you know of any resources explaining the SD Gundam shorts, spot any references or gags that we miss, 
or think one of our theories is wrong, please drop us a line. We would love to hear from you. The humor is silly, absurd, slapstick, and fourth wall breaking. Characters frequently talk about each other as characters rather than people, refer to events from shows that they weren't in, and make meta jokes about the shows themselves. Many of the lines seem to refer to fan comments or criticism. The mobile suits are almost always the same size as the human characters and are animated to give them more personality and emotional expression. Both shorts contain considerable fan service, though I'm using the term in its older, broader sense. Not just cheesecake or sexualized shots of attractive women and girl characters, but in effect, all those moments that make fans of the first three Gundam series point at the screen, clap, cheer, and feel like they are in on the gag. They're inside jokes for hardcore fans. So the thing that struck me immediately about the SD shorts we just watched is how different the two of them are. Uh, the first one feels very much like a kind of, you know, a send up a parody of first Gundam. It's structured as a series of vignettes. And if I had to guess, I haven't had a chance to read a lot of the old SD Gundam four panel parody comics, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these vignettes are taken directly from those comics. That's about the level of development they have. That's about the, the level of complexity that each of these little vignettes has. And mostly they're built around like one or two jokes. It also substantially follows the plot of the first series, but out of order and obviously leaving lots of things out. Yeah, when I first encountered this one, my thinking was like, oh, maybe this was intended to be like a refresher or a catch up for anybody who was going into the theaters to watch Char's Counterattack and hadn't seen First Gundam ever or not since 1979. But it would actually like it would not do that job. It's too scattered. Uh, it, it wouldn't make any sense. And it wouldn't be funny at all if you hadn't seen First Gundam already. And it absolutely would not convey the story to you in a way that would be useful for watching the upcoming movie. Whereas the second one feels considerably like fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, combining characters from different series who you like or transplanting the characters of your favorite series to a seaside resort town or to some other setting that is incongruous with their original setting. Those are all pretty popular things to do in fan fiction. Yeah, I mean, people do the like, you know, the stereotypical coffee shop alternative universe where all the characters, instead of killing each other in space war, just like snipe at each other sarcastically in a coffee shop. It's a bit like that. Yeah. It feels very much like the 1980s version of the fan culture that exists on Twitter, for instance, where everybody is sort of making memes and jokes about a handful of particularly funny moments from these shows and riffing on each other and going into these spirals where everybody is just getting more and more self-referential. A lot of the early Gundam memes, like Char being three times faster or whatever, make an appearance in the SD shorts. There's a whole bit about how hard Sirocco's name is to pronounce. I think that's about Gundam names in general, but we'll get there. Uh, my one sort of addition or addendum to the stories being substantially like fan-created content is that many of the people working on Char's counterattack would have been fans of the original series, would have been younger and not potentially working yet, or... You know, Gundam could have been what inspired them to get involved in animation. 
a lot of the people who oversaw the creation of the SD shorts had been like mid-level people on Zeta and Double Zeta. So this is their chance to kind of be a little more creative, have a little bit more control, make fun of their old boss. Right. It never feels mean-spirited or particularly pointed, but it does feel as if many of the jokes that are effectively, you know, criticisms or comments on the shows are being made by people who were involved and maybe felt a lot of those same <laughs> criticisms, had a lot of those same thoughts about the show that they were working on, and here they get to express that in a fun way. But your earlier comment about it feeling like fan fiction, I think, is really astute because it does have a feeling of being part of a conversation. Like, there has been this interchange between the fans and the people making the show, and this is one of the few times that that back and forth breaks the surface, and those of us who weren't there personally can see a part of it. Before we start digging into individual jokes, I do want to say, in general, I enjoyed these. I uh, was bracing for them to be either offensive or aggressively unfunny because I feel like a lot of the fan community doesn't <laughs> like them. But at least these first two, the first one I had no issues with at all. The second one, we'll talk about some of the gross bits in it. Uh, but by and large, I enjoyed these. I found them fun. Yeah, I thought the second one, despite its issues, was funnier. I think being its own story helps with that. The first one, probably because I'm missing a lot of the references it's making, doesn't land as hard for me. But like you, I, I liked both of these. I was going to say now to rapid fire through some of the jokes, but we don't rapid fire through anything. We always talk about everything too much. That would set a false expectation. One of the Zaku involved in the first attack on the Gundam gets its feet stuck on the outer surface of the colony and complains that the double-sided tape is too strong. I couldn't find anything about double-sided tape specifically, and it doesn't seem to be a pun. So I think it's just a reference to the fact that they never really explain how mobile suits stick to the outside of colonies but are not too sticky. They stick just enough to be able to walk along the outside. And it's funny to imagine that it's just tape. <laughs> and that really fits into the whole sort of humor aesthetic of the SD Gundams, which is like, what if this sci-fi dramatic melodrama story was actually just real life today with the most sort of jerry-rigged solutions? Then we have the Zaku that can't reach the handle to open the passage into the colony. Perhaps a reference to the lack of posability in early Gunpla? After all, the first high grade wasn't released until 1990. Or even a complaint from fans focused on the real part of Real Robot, that the mobile suits move in ways that actual machines that size and construction probably couldn't manage. Well, and you know, you talk about the lack of posability of early Gunpla, which is absolutely true. The early SD stuff, even less posable. They spot the Gundam on a lounger on the roof of Amuro's house, reading a picture book. That's what Ehon, written on the cover, means. The picture book certainly makes the Gundam seem more childish, and then there are lamps. They look like old-school sun lamps, used for light therapy, or more likely in this scenario, for tanning. Uh, while we don't generally think of Japan having a tanning culture outside of particular fashion subcultures, there have been times when having a tan was fashionable, uh, so the Gundam is not only childish, but perhaps a little vain. 
<laughs> Never mind the ridiculousness of a mobile suit tanning. This is followed by Haro bowling through the three Zaku. Oh god, I love this Haro appearance. It's one of my favorite parts in the whole short. Haro is gigantic, which I actually think is a reference to the first episode of First Gundam. There's a quite famous scene in that one where Haro has been drawn just enormous, like way oversized for what we'll see later. And it's much like when Haro attacks the escaped prisoner in First Gundam. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should mention the names of both of these episodes are references to the names of the first two episodes of First Gundam. I hadn't even noticed that. <laughs> the first episode of First Gundam, the name is like the Gundam Stands or Gundam mm, Rises. Mm -hmm. And the name of the second one is like Gundam Destruction Order. Oh, Order that's to right. destroy the Gundam. And then in this scene where Haro attacks... They do Haro's eyes red, which is not unheard of. It's a thing they do occasionally, but they do the eyes very big. So there's a bloodthirstiness <laughs> and Haro practically shoves a bazooka into the Gundam's hands. The bazooka that then puts a hole in the colony uh, and the various Zaku shout, you're even worse than we are in an echo, <laughs> I'm sure, of many fan conversations about the relative moral badness of the two sides in the one year war. <laughs> A little later, the Gundam tries to launch from the white base only to discover it's too heavy. And we zoom out to see it loaded down with what in my notes I called everything and the kitchen sink. I could make out two ladles, a scythe, a pickaxe, a mug and toothbrush, a desk lamp, a toilet, a cloth sack, a bowling pin and bowling ball, a giant novelty pencil, a folded paper fan, a boomerang, a mallet, a rake, an umbrella, a knife, a kendama toy, a paper lantern, it has very strong shovels and rakes and implements of destruction vibes. What is a kendama toy? It's the little wooden toy. There's like a handle and then a piece that looks like two cones attached by the points. And then there's a string with a ball at the end. Oh, it's a, like a cup and ball. Yeah, you're trying to catch the ball on the cup parts of the cones, but you can also catch it on the point at the end of the handle. Mm. And it's a very traditional Japanese toy. Uh, but anyway, this is a long-standing visual gag in cartoons, a character comically overloaded with all kinds of stuff they couldn't possibly need. But I couldn't find much detail on the trope's origins. In this specific context, especially with the selection of accoutrement, the weapons, for instance, in there, they like iron rakes and stuff, and the way it's spread out behind the Gundam like a fan, I think it's a reference to depictions of the Japanese historical heroic figure Benke, who is noted for the panoply of weapons. I think it's Benke and his eight weapons is the traditional way of doing it. But he's always shown with a whole bunch of different weapons, most of them improvised weapons spread out in a fan or peacock shape behind him, like the Gundam is doing here. After the Gundam launches, cut to Shar and Lala watching the Gundam on TV which is another scene from the original series. And Lala says she thinks the Gundam is cool. Shar calls her furui, which our subs translated as old, but in this case probably means old-fashioned, since furui isn't usually used to describe people. Or it might be a pun on the two meanings, since her liking the original Gundam design makes her old-fashioned, and she's a ghost, and ghosts are pretty ancient, <laughs> generally. <laughs> And that is when she turns from, like, human body to ghost body. 
The next scene I had to sit down and go through with Tom because it was far beyond me and plays much more to his strengths, but it's one of the ones that felt extremely fanservice-y to me. In quick succession, the Gundam fights or flies past the Zucrello, a Zaku, an Agagai, a Grabbro, an Adzam, a Zok, a Kapool, a Zogok, which is actually from MSV, a Dodai YS, a Zagok, a Juagu, a Dob, a Theo, an Akgai, the Gyan, a Zaku Flipper, a Kubale, a Marasai, a Nemo, a Hambrabi, a Bigro, and a Brabro. This is one of those moments, it goes so fast, but a dedicated fan would be excitedly trying to identify every one of these suits. And there was probably a certain amount of one-upsmanship about how many suits a fan recognized and could name, especially with the inclusion of suits from the MSV series. These shorts are going to be released on video in just a couple of months, which tells me that by this point, they were making these things knowing that they would be released on video and knowing, therefore, that people would be able to slow it down, watch it again and again, pause in order to really identify all of these background details. And all of them in chibi versions, right? All of them SD versions of these suits, but still identifiable to a sufficiently motivated fan. Though it's funny when you do SD proportions for something that doesn't have a head, because as I talked about, mostly it's about taking a human body and squashing it, right? But if you look at the Big Row or the Bra Bro or any of these ships that just, I mean, the Zacrello is basically already super deformed. So they've just taken it and like shrunk it. One of the fourth wall breaking moments that I really liked happens after the Red Zaku shoots by so fast it cannot stop or control its flight. The background music changes, the background itself changes to red, and the Gundam says, this theme, identifying the music that cues us to Lala's presence rather than the pressure or <laughs> feeling that new types feel around each other that is the shorthand in the show. <laughs> they do the joke about Char being really fast repeatedly in both of these shorts. So even in 1988, fans were already driving that joke into the ground. Later, in the scene of the Big Zam at Abawaku, after the Big Zam turned red under the beam fire from the surrounding mobile suits, it appears breaded and fried on a plate next to some side dishes with, you know, what sounds like a restaurant employee handing the dish off to a customer. I figured this had to be a pun or based on an expression. One of the verbs for to fry, ageru, can also mean to be finished, to give out, or to die. But, better yet, it turns out there is a Japanese colloquial expression, ageashi o toru. The phrase comes originally from judo and sumo, meaning to grab someone's unweighted or raised leg, which obviously is good when you're trying to knock them down. As a colloquial expression, it means to nitpick someone's mistakes. And if you look again at the shot of the big zam on the plate, only the legs are fried, ageashi. And the mobile suit that undermines and knocks over the big zam is the ag, hence age. It makes me wonder what nitpicks people had about the big zam. <laughs> you look at that beautiful machine. I don't know how anyone could find any fault with it. A zasa mobile suit charges in, but before it can attack, beads of sweat appear on its face, and it says atamaga omoi, or my head is heavy. 
a pun on the top heaviness of the Zasa mobile suit, and the phrase, my head is heavy, which, as in English, is a feeling associated with sickness or exhaustion. It then tips forward when it tries to fire and is destroyed by its own missiles. <laughs> While the original Gundam fights the three Doms and their jet stream attack, the Zeta and the Double Zeta lament that they probably won't get a turn. They sit under a paper umbrella, one of them writing calligraphy on a strip of paper. I tried to make out what's written, but can't quite decipher the second kanji. So it's like shutsu or de something something ga shuhi. So something something is unparalleled. The first kanji is simple enough. It's usually pronounced shutsu or de and means exit, leave, come out, go out. So I searched words starting with that first character and didn't find anything that looked right. I'm fairly confident about one of the radicals or parts of the second kanji, so I searched based on that too. Could not figure out what is written there. They are also having a tea ceremony. You can tell because of the basin of water and the water dipper, and the double zeta appears to be whisking a bowl of tea. In Japanese tea ceremony, matcha, or green tea powder, is whisked with water that is just the right temperature to make a frothy green tea. In the scene immediately following, they are drinking the tea, and a speech bubble connects to both and says, cha ga umai, or the tea is delicious. Tea ceremony is a very quiet, contemplative, and deliberately paced activity. There's no talking during a tea ceremony. Uh, so it makes a funny contrast to the battle going on right alongside them. This scene with the Black Tri-Stars opens with a funny little visual joke. Because throughout this whole short, the planetoids, the moon, and the earth have been shown to have like faces. They'll be smiling or whatever. But in the Black Tri-Stars scene, we see the moon making like a surprised face. And then we realize that that's actually the three doms of the Black Tri-Stars silhouetted against the moon. That was cute. After the Gundam beats the Black Tri-Stars, we zoom out to be overhead and a gridded game board appears underneath all the mobile suits. The black tri-stars are arranged in a line, with one Gundam on either side and one just above the rightmost enemy. At first I thought it might be a reference to the game Go, but with the green game board and pieces inside the grid squares rather than on the intersections of the lines, it's actually a reference to the game Reversi or Othello. Othello being a more recent rule set invented by Hasegawa Goro in 1971. In Othello, you change the other player's pieces to your own by flanking them between your pieces. And the classic game board pieces are black and white, again playing with the contrast between the mostly white Gundams and the black and gray Doms. Cresting over the top of a dune in the middle of a sandstorm, the Palace Athene declares itself the strongest and willing to fight the Gundam any time, then fires missiles in every direction. Missiles that almost immediately turn around and come right back at her. Why does this happen? I have no idea. Perhaps a comment on how Rekawa's own decisions lead to her destruction. Perhaps. It's also similar to the joke they did earlier with the Zusa. It's just kind of funny when somebody blows themselves up that way. There's a, an implied haplessness and a funny contrast between how self-serious her little speech is and then how silly it is for her to be destroyed by her own missiles. I don't know if this is part of it, but the Palace Athene has these like big missile launchers on its back. 
Except those don't actually show up in the show. They're there in all the art, they're on the gunpla and they're on the toys, but they're not actually in the show. So there might be a joke there about that. Huh. Then we have the fight between the Zeong and the Gundam. They're taking a quick break, panting for breath. The Zeong says, Gundam, join me. It's what Lala would have wanted. In Japanese, it says, Watashi no doshi ni nare. Become my comrade. I can't figure out why this makes the Gundam think of a ballet skirt. Does he think that since the Zeong has a skirt, if they joined forces, the Gundam would have to have a skirt too? That is my assumption. I feel like almost all the jokes they're making in this part of the scene are about the Zeong's skirted appearance. Then when the Zeong attacks, its hands fly forward and an ostrich appears out of nowhere, keeping pace but eventually being passed by those hands. When the shot zooms out, there's a whole stampede of ostriches and the Gundam has to jump out of the way. Ostriches are the fastest two-legged animal and can reach a top speed of 70 kilometers or 43 miles per hour. People race them. They don't usually travel in large groups, but under certain conditions they do. And you can absolutely find video of them stampeding. I feel as though I've seen them crop up in cartoons before, but I cannot remember specific examples. Hmm. See, my assumption is that this is another joke about the skirt. Because the ostrich's weird, like, body shape kind of looks like a Zeong. Especially when you take into account the ostrich's, like, long neck and head and its long skinny legs. The original Zeong gunpla simulated the arms and the head by having, like, I don't know, two-inch long thin metal rods that would connect the neck to the base of the head or the wrists to the arms. And I can see how looking at that, would it would feel like an ostrich with the big old skirt and the long, thin neck and limbs. Later on, the Zeong's head separates from its body. It destroys the Gundam's beam rifle and they chase each other around space. And then the head charges at the Gundam. Pulling a baseball bat from somewhere, the Gundam swings at the Zeong head and a speed appears in the bottom left corner of the frame, 150 kilometers per hour. Clearly a baseball reference, though whether it's to a real baseball player or record or to a baseball video game, there were a lot of them even then, we weren't sure. The first radar guns to measure pitch speed or exit speed, the speed at which the ball travels off the bat, appeared in the 1970s and 80s. Given when the speed appears on the screen, it's probably exit speed. 150 kilometers per hour is around 93 miles per hour, just below the contemporary Major League Baseball average exit speed of 94 miles per hour. And on my last watch through of this short, I noticed that the Zeong head has nori written in hiragana on the underside. Nori can have a lot of meanings, I'm most used to it referring to seaweed, but it can also mean riding, spirit of enthusiasm, model or pattern, and paste, glue, or starch. Is it a bit like writing glue here? Is it a gunpla reference? No idea. That one mystifies us. On to the next one. When Amuro and Judo are arguing, trying to convince the ladies of Gundam to stay in their pensions, they yell back and forth that one of them is Ganso and one is Seito. And Camille describes his as honke. Our subs translate ganso as original, seito as proper, and honke as main. Jisho.org gives the meanings as originator or founder, 
legitimate or traditional, and originator or head household of a family. So they all mean basically the same thing. <laughs> and all of them arguing back and forth are, I assume, a stand-in for fan debates about which series is best, which is the most true to the spirit of Gundam, and so on. And fans still have these arguments today, so imagine what they were like back then. When almost every visitor decides to stay at Camille's Zeta pension, is that because of Camille's popularity with women fans? That I don't know. Camille is, of all the characters, the most popular with women characters. And he is so brooding. I had remembered seeing some old surveys about which Gundam series and protagonists women particularly like, but uh, could not find them <laughs> for the purposes of this piece. So if you have those links handy, send them our way. <laughs> and if all the guests are attracted to Camille's pension because he's popular with the fans, what then explains how unpopular the Xeon Hotel is, since Char is also a fan favorite? Well, the short answers that question pretty plainly by having both Char's allies and his opponents point out that he is so proud he won't even interact with women. I mean, potential guests. <laughs> he's aloof. And there's a bit later where he's like, if you take away my aloofness, what do I have left? Nothing. But while Char might be a favorite with the fans, if you consider his role in the actual shows, his record with women, not great. Especially from Zeta onward, there's the whole non-romance with Rekua, there's the implication of some bad blood between him and Haman. And I can absolutely imagine fans, anime magazines, and even people working on the show questioning, well, but what does this character have other than being mysterious? <laughs> what else is there to him? To really hammer home the point, Charlene's nonchalantly on a nearby wall. A false wall held in place by Yazan specifically for that purpose. <laughs> Obviously, very silly and fun. And, you know, just a comment on how many characters and many people who build their whole personality on being nonchalant, it's all carefully constructed. And in fact, a lot of effort goes into having that appearance. Uh... Hang on, let's go back a second. You <laughs> didn't mention the bus that Sirocco drives up in. The bus which is shaped like a Gundam head with a V-fin and like the, I don't know, the like air circulation system on the top shaped like the Gundam's little crest. Why don't we build actual buses like this? We make so many goofy looking buses. Why don't we build a Gundam bus? I bet a Gundam bus exists. It's such a good design. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's real. Honestly, this short makes me wish that I could go and stay in a Gundam head-shaped pension. I also want to take a moment to talk about which villains appear in this short, because, again, my assumption is that they picked people who were fan favorites, uh, which I am a bit surprised. There's the Black Tri-Stars, who we barely get to know. <laughs> Though I think when we covered them in First Gundam, I pointed out that for characters who have such a small presence in that show, they really do have a long shadow. And then there's Yazan and Gemon Bajak, of all people. Yeah. Well, so Gemon is a great villain, right? He's is very he? villainous. He's easy to hate. He's less complicated than so many of the other villains I in this show. I guess that's true. The thing about Gemon is I hate him in a way where I don't ever want to see him again. 
not like a Yazan who is fun to hate. They also might have included Gemon just because Gemon was inherently ridiculous. Like, how many times did we laugh at things that happened to Gemon in Double Zeta? And so, you know, maybe he felt like he fit better That's in true. the shorts. Also, all of the henchmen who show up with Shar in this scene fit into a particular kind of masculinity, a very particular kind of male energy from the Black Tri-Stars, Yazan and Gemon, that like, Sirocco is also in the shorts, but Sirocco doesn't fit that group, and so he's not part of them. He's at the pension, he's the bus driver at the beginning, and he's trying to hook up with Sarah at the pool party. One of the more straightforward gags, but that consistently cracked me up, was Woody's appearance. All he says in the whole short is, I'm Woody. I'm Woody. <laughs> Which is really all that's necessary, since his entire purpose in First Gundam is to make clear to Amuro that his interest in Matilda was always doomed. Yeah, the Woody gag is really funny. Uh, I did not enjoy the various men being creeps jokes. No. Judo is... leering openly at naked Pudu. Judo peeping at women in the shower, even if they are mostly in bathing suits. Shar peeping <laughs> with binoculars. And Shar later peeping at Kiara assaulting Judo. And Judo during that assault, clearly enjoying it in a way that is not accurate to the show. Yeah, um, this is getting into kind of the bad parts of this second short. And it's funny because a lot of it is focused around Judo, who was by far the least horny of all the protagonists. Like, in First Gundam and Zeta, Amuro and Camille both have scenes where they accidentally see a girl naked and they get kind of aroused and it's played for humor, but they are horny young men in a way that Judo never is. Well, both of them explicitly have romantic interest in one or multiple women and girls who they come across in the course of the show. Whereas with Judo, it's sort of unclear, like, maybe he's kind of interested in L, but clearly not that much, right? He's not head over heels. He's not trying to fight Bicha for her. There are never any scenes where he's leering over the girls. There's never any hint of jealousy. And there's definitely never any, like, Judo interest in Puru or Judo interest in Kiara, for that matter. Whereas the version of Judo who makes it into these SD shorts is, you know, a lecherous little monster. And this kind of thing is a long-standing gag in all kinds of cartoons, but that just means it's poppycock with a precedent. I wish I felt as though it were a critique of fans' prurient interest in many of the characters, but I don't think it's that pointed or self-aware. There is an element of humor to it in the way that we see these, like, girls in bikinis and naked Pudu running around, but they all have an identical potato body. They're like naked baby dolls. They're not people. But that leering gaze is always present. And there is some humor to be found in the contrast between the leering gaze and the ridiculous potato body being gazed upon. But I sure don't love it. It doesn't work for me. This is also part of why I'm so skeptical of explanations for Puru's name that don't involve the manga child pornography magazine L people, because the people making the show are so clearly aware of that aspect. They even have her notice and wink at Judo. 
when she catches him ogling her. Yeah, she gives the camera the bedroom eyes. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. And that's especially unfortunate because the gag of having her taking a bath in the shower is actually pretty funny. Like, that's a nice riff on her obsession with baths from the show. One character not included in all of this is Haman. Later on, there's a scene of a drunken Haman wheeling around holding a bottle of something and questioning why Char left her. She has one arm out of its sleeve, as you sometimes see samurai do in movies. Uh, This is called katahada, or bare or naked shoulder, and theoretically is to improve mobility of the exposed arm. But in practice, this was probably more of a stage affectation to show how serious, aggressive, or dangerous a character was. And it's used in a decidedly masculine way here. It's obviously not supposed to be sexy. (laughs) This is a very funny scene, though, as she's cracking Char across the face with this bottle. She's got the the drunk sads. She's confronting her (laughs) ex-boyfriend. No, come on, go home, sleep it off. Uh, In a nod to Bright's general uselessness, he shows up to stop Char, only for Char to step easily out of the way and Bright to wind up in the swimming pool. Just a little casual humiliation for Bright. Just a little bit. That's his only scene. (laughs) Then Tom mentioned earlier, there's a series of humorous mishearings involving Sirocco's and Camille's names, which my read on it is that it's about the ridiculousness of Gundam names and tells us, as a mostly foreign audience, that even Japanese audiences thought Gundam names were silly. (laughs) Shiroko. Oh, the thing you put on shaved ice? No, that's Shiropo. Kamiyu. Oh, the thing you put on cake? No, that's Kurimu. (laughs) We get a fun pun with Amuro and Lala, who are like sitting on a pool floating together, but Lala is a ghost, and she does the line about, I can see time, but she's just looking at the clock. And the very last scene is the three protagonists running off into the sunrise rather than a sunset, as is tradition. I assume because then it's a pun with the name of the production company. Before that, there's the final fight between Char's Zaku, which comes in and transforms basically into a non-SD Zaku, which of course is absolutely terrifying to all of the tiny little SD mobile suits. The transformation sequence feels very Ultraman-esque to me, like the little person transforms into the giant hero, but then gets spooked by the arrival of the new Gundam. And the visual joke there is great. The new Gundam silhouetted against a star-filled night sky, and it is also in its regular proportions, regular size. Then you see, oh, actually... That's a trick of the light. It's being silhouetted against this big projection screen. (laughs) Uh, It is actually chibi-sized, which means when they show it, they're not completely giving away what the new Gundam looks like before its introduction in the movie. You're getting to see the SD version, so you have some clue about it, but you don't really get a sense for the mobile suit as it will be in the movie. They maintain a little bit of mystery. And... A moment later, they have Char disappear, leaving only his helmet behind, and they make some jokes about how good he is at running away. He shows up in the penultimate scene in his Quattrobagina guise, but he's building the Sazabi, and he says, I'll get my revenge in the movie, which is about to start. It's a nice little like lead into the movie. Also, 
It's a fun trivia fact for all of you out there that the new Gundam and Sazabi did not premiere in Char's Counterattack. This is their first animated appearance. All in all, these were fun. I look forward to watching some more of them as time goes on. Hopefully the proportion of jokes that I like to jokes that I find creepy improves over time. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Hmm. A girl can hope. Hmm. And now Nina's research on the period 1986 to 1988. As in previous seasons, we want to provide an overview of the contemporary events around the time of a work's development and release. What was happening in the world? What events might have influenced the creators as they wrote, storyboarded, animated, and voice acted this movie? For that matter, what was going on that might have influenced how viewers experienced, interpreted, and understood it? What's different for Char's counterattack is the very short span of time between when Double Zeta began and when Char's counterattack was first released in theaters. February 22, 1986, until March 12, 1988. Just over two years. If you'd like a refresher on the early to mid-1980s or on the period just before Double Zeta's release, those overviews appear in episode 2.1 and 3.1. As before, these are going to be high-level overviews of events with the goal of capturing the feeling of the times, although some of these events will absolutely be getting research pieces of their own later in the season. With that, let's take a closer look at this two-year slice of the 1980s. Environmentalism, human-caused damage to the environment, and danger to humans from the environment are all a constant presence. Last season, I mentioned that the 80s saw the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer and the destruction of the Greenpeace flagship Rainbow Warrior by French military agents, while the ship was on its way to protest French nuclear tests in the South Pacific. 1986-88 also saw deadly natural disasters, a hailstorm in Bangladesh, a tsunami in Alaska, a limnic eruption in Cameroon, where a body of water suddenly releases vast amounts of gases that suffocate nearby air-breathing creatures, hurricane-force winds in England, and a typhoon in the Philippines. For human-caused disasters, the Chernobyl meltdown happened in this time frame, as did the Sandoz chemical spill, which polluted the Rhine River, and the Guyana accident, in which metal scrappers unknowingly opened an old radiation source abandoned in a hospital in Guyana, Brazil causing the worst-ever urban radiation accident. A cargo ship, the Kian Sea, carrying toxic waste from the U.S. state of Pennsylvania, spent 16 months at sea after it was turned away from its original destination, as country after country refused to take the waste imports. Ultimately, the ship dumped part of the waste in Haiti under false pretenses and illegally dumped the rest in the ocean. The Phosphorite War, an environmental movement in the, at the time, Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic, was at its peak in 1987, as the central government announced plans to expand phosphorite mining in the region against the wishes of the local population. That same year, the UN published Our Common Future, also known as the Brundtland Report, analyzing the environmental interdependence of the nations of the world and the need for sustainable development to, quote, meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Per the UN, 
the world population reached 5 billion on approximately July 11, 1987. In the economy, Japan's asset price bubble ran from 1986 until 1991, with a lot of suburban land speculation around this time, although by 88, Tokyo land prices were beginning to stagnate. The Nikkei, Japan's stock exchange, reached a record high. The yen was strong against the U.S. dollar, and average per capita income in Japan exceeded that in the United States. Have we yet reached the point where the grounds of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo are valued at a sum greater than the value of the entire state of California? That I don't know. Because that is going to happen during the asset bubble. There was a massive, sudden deregulation of financial markets in the UK, specifically the London Stock Exchange, under Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1986, which was called the Big Bang. The Black Monday, or Black Tuesday in some parts of the world, stock market crash of October 19th and 20th, 1987, saw all 23 major world stock markets experience sharp declines. The smallest decline was 11.4%, and the largest, 45.8%. Fun fact, the trading curbs, colloquially known as circuit breakers, that allow exchanges to halt trading when certain indices see sharp, sudden declines, were put into place after Black Monday, but were first used during the market crash in early 2020. Woo, 80s nostalgia. The 80s are back. (laughs) Laugh and cry simultaneous. Despite the Black Monday crash, the Dow Jones Industrial Average set not one, but two records in this two-year period, closing over 2,000 and then over 2,500 for the first time ever. Microsoft's IPO, initial public offering, was in 1986, And the magazine The Economist introduced the, quote, Big Mac Index, a measure that uses the price of a McDonald's Big Mac in different countries to analyze exchange rates and purchasing power. In global politics, the Soviet-Afghan war was ongoing, as was the Chadian-Libyan conflict. And the first Nagorno-Karabakh war and the Somali civil war began. Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme was assassinated in 1986 and there were coups in Fiji, Burundi, and Burkina Faso. In the Iran-Iraq War, the Kurdish genocide and the systematic attacks that comprised it began in 1986 and peaked in 1988. In 1987, during the Hajj pilgrimage, clashes between Iranian protesters and Saudi security forces in Mecca led to the deaths of over 400 pilgrims. The Iran-Contra affair was happening slash being exposed around this time. It's a bit convoluted, but basically, senior members of the Reagan administration in the United States arranged for secret arms sales to Iran in violation of an arms embargo so that they could send additional funding to the Contras, U.S.-backed right-wing rebels in Nicaragua, because any further official funding had been prohibited by Congress. This practice began in 1985, though the arms sales part predated it by a few years. But the information was leaked in 1986 with a subsequent fallout of scandal, investigations, firings, and resignations. There were kidnappings, hostage crises, bombings, hijackings, the hostage crisis in Lebanon, a bus station bombing in Sri Lanka, an ETA car bomb in Barcelona, Sikh separatists in India, and numerous incidents between the Provisional IRA and the British Army. 
In the Azerbaijani town of Sumgate, there was a pogrom against ethnic Armenians. 165 protesters were killed at anti-government protests in Kazakhstan. North Korean agents bombed Korean Air Flight 858. In the Leiu massacre, the army of the Republic of China killed Vietnamese refugees who, after being turned away from Hong Kong, arrived at Dongang Bay, Leiu Island. The First Intifada, mass protests by Palestinians against Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, began in 1987 and would continue until 1991, or 1993, depending on how you define the end. In South Korea, student activist Park Jong-chul was detained and tortured to death, and in the demonstrations that followed another student, Lee Han-yul, was killed by a tear gas canister. Their deaths fueled the June democracy movement, mass protests that forced the authoritarian government to adopt democratic reforms and hold elections, leading to the establishment of the Sixth Republic and the form of government still in place today. The shadow of World War II was a long one. In 1987, Klaus Barbie, better known as the Butcher of Lyon, was on trial for crimes against humanity after more than 30 years living under a pseudonym in Bolivia. And after years of questions and allegations, in 1986, the New York Times published an article accusing Kurt Waldheim, former United Nations Secretary General and candidate for President of Austria, of involvement in Nazi war crimes. The same two-year period somehow saw the Cold War go from failed negotiations to the signing of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty by Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987. It was ratified in 88. The treaty banned land-based ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and some missile launchers. Reagan's famous tear down this wall speech, in reference to the Berlin Wall, was given in June of 1987, although it didn't achieve its current popular status until after the wall fell in 1989. And the Soviet Union was undergoing big changes, as Gorbachev promoted reform under the terms glasnost, openness or transparency, and perestroika, reconstruction, functionally allowing for more open discussion and criticism of the government and incorporating certain elements of liberal economic policy into the Soviet economy. Portugal signed an agreement for the return of Macau to China, with the handover to occur in 1999. The U.S. Senate began to televise its proceedings. The U.K. and the Netherlands signed a peace treaty, finally ending a war that had technically lasted 335 years. 38 years of martial law in Taiwan came to an end. And Hirohito celebrated his diamond jubilee, 60 years as emperor. In science and technology, the Japanese Suisei probe, or comet probe, was studying Halley's Comet. Rutan Voyager completed the first-ever non-stop air circumnavigation of the Earth without refueling. NASA announced that four private companies were awarded contracts to help build Space Station Freedom, those four being Boeing Aerospace, General Electric's Astrospace Division, McDonnell Douglas, and the Rocketdyne Division of Rockwell. Eric Thomas developed the ListServ, and the Perl programming language was created. The first iteration of Photoshop was produced. The very first atomic force microscope was built. The first baby born to a non-bio-related surrogate. Los Alamos National Laboratory hosted the world's first conference on artificial life. 
the enduringly famous antidepressant Prozac was approved by the FDA. And the Seikan Tunnel in Japan, connecting the islands of Honshu and Hokkaido, would open just after CCA's release and remained the world's longest tunnel until 2016 and the world's deepest until 2019. One event that stood out to me particularly was the Seville Statement on Violence, adopted by an international group of scientists convened through UNESCO. The statement sought to refute the idea that humans are genetically or biologically predisposed to violence and specifically to war, that violence and war are inevitabilities in human society. I can hear Amaro and Shar debating now. In media and culture, it feels worth mentioning that Top Gun came out in this period. Platoon won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1987. Final Fantasy was released for Famicom, and Konami released Metal Gear. The first Simpsons shorts appeared on The Tracy Ullman Show. Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro came out. The Transformers, the movie, too. Pixar was founded, and a ton of different now-famous animated shows began, including Pingu, Dragon Ball, Maison Koku, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Saint Seiya, City Hunter, Kimagure Orange Road. I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> Production IG, the studio that would go on to make, among other things, Psychopaths, Eden of the East, Haikyuu, and the Ghost in the Shell anime, was also founded at this time. Author Elie Wiesel won the Nobel Peace Prize for his activism. Hands Across America raised millions of dollars for famine relief in Africa and to combat homelessness in the United States. Aretha Franklin became the first woman inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Even if you don't much follow soccer slash football history, you've probably heard of the 1986 World Cup. It's the one in which Diego Maradona scored two famous goals in Argentina's quarterfinal match against England, the Hand of God goal and the goal of the century. Argentina won that match 2-1 to one and went on to win the cup. You have probably also heard the distasteful phrase going postal, which sees its first use in the early 90s but originates in a series of workplace shootings by current or former postal employees arguably beginning with the one in 1986 in Edmond, Oklahoma, in which an employee shot 20 of his co-workers, 14 of whom died. To focus more specifically on Japan, the declining birth rate and aging population prompted an expansion of welfare programs for the elderly and an overhaul of the public pension system. The commercial whaling moratorium began in 1986, there was a war between two Yakuza organizations, the Yamaichi War, that lasted from 1985 to 1989. The Stocks for Favors recruit scandal, named for one of the companies involved, led to the resignations of a number of Japanese politicians, but few criminal prosecutions. Surprise, surprise. But the recruit scandal is one that had a huge impact in Japanese culture. It's something to keep an eye on. And the asset price bubble altered internal migration patterns. For the first time in the post-war period, there was a significant migration out of the largest cities and to nearby suburbs. Whew. I'm sure I left a lot out, but this concludes our whirlwind tour of 1986 to early 1988. My hope is that this did for you what it did for me. Give me a sense of the times that the creators and the audience lived in. 
a time of, perhaps, increased awareness of human-caused environmental disaster, a time of significant violent conflict around the globe, but also a time of exciting scientific breakthroughs, of people fighting back against oppressive regimes, of increasing prosperity and flourishing popular media. This is the backdrop, the world against which Shar's counterattack would have been compared and analyzed. Next time on episode 4.2, The Infinite Mobius Loop, we recap and discuss our initial reactions to Shar's counterattack and recaps and recaps to recap the recaps. Mirai's Choice The Catcher in the Alpha Aziru Quest hates phonies Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. This is the kid they made a whole movie about later? No comment. Uh, clown? Is that supposed to say clone? What is with you and clones? Move on, Nina. There weren't even any body doubles in this movie. There comes a time in every young man's life when he must steal a mobile suit and do something that will haunt him to the end of his days. And... Do you want a long podcast? Because that's how you get a long podcast. You can change your destiny. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. This week's SD Gundam recap included the songs Dawn by Mr. Smith and Hyson by Olivia. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on any deserted street corner. So get out there and shout, Char's counterattack gets better every time you watch it. So as a Gundam fan, it's your duty to watch the movie again and again until you love it. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. Fantastic. You liked it? Yeah. Yay! Good. Okay, that's weird. I feel like I'm only getting audio through one ear of my headphones. That's weird. Uh, I guess let me try unplugging and replugging them. Okay. Before being tripped by an agu, tunneling a, a tunneling up under the surface. Pause on that. Yeah. Um, Ag. No, I just um, the way it's phrased, it sounds like it's the gym that got tripped. Okay. So just say it before okay. the big exam is tripped or something. They make some good attachments that go on top of an existing desk. That might be what you're looking for. Um. 
It's just a very cool piece of furniture. <laughs> yeah, totally. That I look at and I'm like, oh, that's really neat. I like that. <laughs> well, when we when we build out a proper studio space in the future, the the imaginary future. Ah, uh, all right. You about ready? I am. My theory is that this short in particular is spoofing... Oh, we already talked about that later. It's like seeing... It's uh, a good comparison. Like naked baby dolls. Oh, shoot. Um, those overviews appear in episodes... <laughs> I meant to pull the episode oh. numbers and I forgot. I mean, it's probably 2.1 and 3.1. Did either of those have a zero? I guess I can do both. I, I don't think we did zeros, no. Okay. Um, I'm not positive. Rutan Voyager completed the first ever non-stop air, air blah, blah, blah. this is a long sentence. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. Deleted. Deleted. Sometimes we're wrong. Del Tacoed? And the first naked eye supernova since 1604 was observed. Meaning, meaning you can see it with your naked eyes? Correct. That's not like a, a term for a particular kind of supernova? I mean, one that's near enough that we can see it without a telescope <laughs> from the surface of the Earth. But not, li not like one that looks like a naked eye unblinking staring at you like Sauron. I think that's all supernovas. Hmm. I don't know. I've never seen one. Had done with Choro, had done with Choro Q, Choro. Hey, that's really funny. Thank you. 